This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Omniscient GMCs. My Cocktail Quest. The French Intelligence Services. And Harry Chandler's L.A. Leyline. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the combined wafting aromas of various styrofoam containers full of delicious takeout. Tell us, we've once more entered the ultra-modern, ultra-swank confines of the gaming hut. And this time, uh, as we knew would happen, uh, Brent Kramer, Patreon backer Brent Kramer, has asked us the following question. As a GM, how do you handle an omniscient or semi-omniscient ally or enemy in a long-term game. Ken, uh, speaking of semi-onitions, yes. how would you handle this problem? The ally is actually harder to handle than the enemy. If it's an enemy, that's great, because that just explains why you, the GM, can not firewall your knowledge about the party's plans, activities, secrets, everything. It's like, oh, well, that solved it. He's semi-omniscient. He has a Palantir. He has a legion of nanobots. He has uh, vast telepathic powers because he goes into his cerebro chamber. Whatever it is that lets you have the excuse of, yeah, I knew that you were going to be planning that because I just sat here and heard you do it for 45 minutes. So, of course, he's screwed you, are now part of the backstory and ideally... The player characters and the players have the goal of disrupting or figuring out the one chink in his semi-omniscience. If he's truly omniscient, if they're literally fighting God, well, first of all, don't fight God. It's unwise and wrong. (laughs) But second of all, you are running a one-shot because you don't have to be omnipotent if you're omniscient. That's the lesson we learn from the word omni. But the semi-omniscience, the, you know, he depends on on a machine or some, or servants, there, there's one thing you can't see, true love or the color purple or whatever it is. Uh, that's the thing that then you figure it out, you use that and you, and you nail him. And that's a uh, great fun. And it's just like every other superpower in every other game. Find the exploit. It's just, it's just hugely convenient for the GM and is great fun. And the players, at least, if not the player characters grow to sort of say, ah, well, <laughs> semi omniscient. What were we going to do? Or mostly yeah, the, omniscient. The, the challenge of the omniscient enemy is. Uh, more along the lines of dealing with players becoming despondent. Right. The, the enemy is too powerful, and if they if they're listening and not planning, our planning means nothing. What do we do? Uh, you know, even I've had experiences of uh, you know even enemies who aren't anywhere close to omniscient, but just have a good surveillance setup that players will start to uh, turtle up and feel that there's nothing they can possibly do to succeed. Uh, in the face of such an enemy, and so the well, when players the turtle, pro- that's when you attack them, teach them not to turtle. What you what you provide there are small victories um, that that sort of ideally lead toward the big victory. But even if they don't, they provide uh, change ups. So either you're winning victories against the foes that your semi mission foe doesn't care to protect, which is a good way to to get your uh, yayas back, beating on the double A team instead of the uh, pro team, or uh, you discover 
a thing that will make you not listenable in on for a brief period. Uh, the, the TV show Alias had one of the great things in all TV as metaphor and plot device. The pen, the magic pen, that when you clicked it, prevented surveillance for two minutes. And it was just long enough for uh, Victor Garber to tell Jennifer Garner that he loved her and for her to tell him that she loved him and uh, in exchange melting glances and, oh, right, by the way, that the train is going to blow up. And then <laughs> that would be it. And it was it was perfect. It was like someone in the writer's room said, we just need some reason to have all these melting glances. How do we have a pen that makes melting glances happen? Great, let's do it. And you can put that kind of thing into the game. You can have a spell or a ritual. You can have um, a very, very energy-expensive Faraday cage. Any number of things where it's like, all right, if we do this thing, we're safe for this very brief amount of time. And then that becomes a resource. Uh, freedom from, from surveillance becomes a resource and you can, and you can share it out. And if it's a person who makes you free from resource, then obviously the omniscient enemy targets that person. So ideally it was an NPC, but you know, uh, there, there's any number of, of, of ways to sort of fight your way up that cliff. And if they are not going to fight up the cliff, then they don't belong in a proper role-playing game anyway. They belong in one of those more friendly, hand-holdy role-playing games that I don't run. Right. And so the, the theme that's emerging here, and is going to continue to play out throughout this segment... He said is, omnisciently. He said omnisciently, is accent on the semi in, in semi-omniscient. Right. Right. Make sure it's omniscient with a big exception. Or even a, a few little exceptions that could be strung together. Right. I, I think sort of a... I guess in a long-term game, you might drop the hint that there's, you know, let's say this foe is named Ultima. Ultima, she knows everything except for seven important things. And so, guess what? You can have seven different adventures about the seven things she doesn't know, and you can discover those along the way. Who wrote the Book of Love? That would be one of them. And so that can be a, a fun way to kind of play uh, with the formula and make it uh, more interactive than uh, you otherwise would. Now, uh, I think we've come to the harder part, yes. which is having an omniscient ally. And of course, the problem with that is part of the, it's a subset of the broader problem of having any ally who is more powerful, uh, even in a particular area. And, and having information is the most, arguably most powerful thing in a, in a narrative game. Having an ally who's more powerful than the PCs, generally something you want to avoid. Uh, and if you do wind up doing that, because that's the concept of your thing, you're going to have to constantly lean on various devices, uh, which you can borrow from pop culture, in order to explain, uh, again, what the exception is, if not necessarily to the char character's omniscience, to his usefulness to you. Uh, and it can be anywhere as, as simple as the old, well, Superman is often a mission in space, meaning that you have this uh, super powerful character who sometimes pops in to help you, but a lot of the time he's got other things to do. He's omniscient. He's got other stuff to look at. Yes, exactly. There's hurricanes and uh, Nazi compounds and, you know, supermodels and all kinds of things. Right. He's a busy guy. And you can see this in the show Supernatural where they early on gave them an angel as an ally. Turned out that actor was super popular and they wanted to keep him as a recurring character on the show, but they constantly throughout the whole length of the series since that uh, Castiel, that character, has joined, they keep having to come up with reasons why he isn't there helping the two main characters all the time. And so, you know, you can just watch a whole bunch of Supernatural and borrow all of those different reasons that <laughs> you, you give right. the omniscient ally some agenda that is not just helping the, the players, and that agenda may occasionally intersect with theirs, and when it does... He provides the information that they need to find the plot. And that's the other thing about omniscient allies is make sure that you're giving them the information you, the GM, want them to have. Yes. As, and once you've, once you've weakened your story that badly, make sure you've done it in order to make the story better. Exactly. So, you know, when he does show up to, to tell you what's going on, he tells you where the vault under the mountain is that they've been spending two sessions trying to find, and you just want to get them to the vault in the mountain, and they've refused all other clues well have omniscient guys show up with the information right. you know that then they know that the uh the story lies in the vault under the mountain now one of the other classic uh ways you treat the omniscient guy is the sort of mycroft holmes uh nero wolf fashion where he's omniscient but for whatever reason he doesn't get out much so mycroft holmes is uh seriously agoraphobic so he stays in the diogenes club nero wolf is just a fat lazy jerk <laughs> <laughs> Who just doesn't want to go anywhere. And so that's he, his own Diogenes Club. 
he sends he's, he's a Diogenes club of one, and he sends um uh, uh, Archie around to do all the investigating. And so you can have your omniscient guy can be like uh, maybe he's a brain in a jar and he just can't go out, or he's a spirit that has to be bound into a pentacle to be on this plane at all. And so he can answer questions and give you information, but you can't carry him around with you and use him like, um, you know, a, an iPhone yes. and, and just dial up the answers all the time. Meaning that there has to be some uh, device explaining why you can't just talk to him long distance. Right. You're, you're having uh, some sort of adventure. Well, technology may prevent you or the fact that as an omniscient guy, he's like, don't call me a long distance. We don't want to be... Uh, surveilled by the enemy. If there's anyone who knows how bad that is, it's me whose job is surveilling the enemy. Yes, so, and, and I don't go anywhere, right. so I don't want so, people to know where so I am. It, it takes very little triangulation for them to find my jar or yeah. Diogenes Club. <laughs> so um, that that actually becomes a fun and useful thing because then that gives you the narrative structure of the voice on the tape, the guy that gives you your instructions and says. Um, the man you're looking at is the key to the damn adventure. So go to Grand Rapids, Michigan and in, uh, investigate his, uh, demon arson ring or whatever. And you go off and sure enough, there's a demon arson ring. Who knew? Oh, that's right. Our omniscient friend back at Diogenes jar. And so that, that gives you a lot of good things and you can use the omniscient fellow as a resource so that if you need to have ha- have more information you can go back to him but that takes time or it takes effort or it uses up one of your genie wishes or whatever or uh and here's a sort of a gumshoey way to deal with it you can simply have your allies omniscience be a resource that the player characters can spend a la preparedness where they're like if this guy was omniscient shouldn't he have a gang of serbian toughs here waiting to do our bidding and paid off Roll for Serbian Tufts. Oh, yes, look at that. He's got you nine of them. Now you can take your nine Serbian Tufts into the dungeon and think about the fact that the GM was happy to give you nine extra Serbian Tufts and uh, go nuts with that fact. And so that can be a resource that you spend. And so rather than making the GM the hero for saying, fortunately, there were nine Serbian Tufts here to save you, you, the player, feel like the hero because you thought of the fact that your ally should have thought of the fact of sending you Serbian Tufts, right? Right. And the fact that he's omniscient doesn't necessarily mean that he has a network of Serbian toughs. It doesn't necessarily mean that he has any great way of intervening in the world. And of course, you can also, speaking of drawing on cliches, of course, you've got the Watcher Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Marvel Comics, and uh, he can uh, know everything, but be limited in how much of it he's allowed to tell you. Or the Phantom Stranger does that in in, um, uh, DC without you wanting to punch him all the time. Right. And so there's some reason why, you know, he's only allowed to tell you so much or only about certain things. Or, you know, if I tell you seven really important things, you know, and and minor little details, it doesn't matter. And, and, you know, I could explain to you what counts as a really important thing. But of course, that That would would be one of your important things. And it would take 30 years. It would age you 30 years. Your human human mentation could not compute it. I was actually just watching the Ray Harryhausen classic Jason and the Argonauts uh, on Sunday. And he, in the movie, has the omniscient uh, assistance of Honor Blackman, a.k.a. Hera, the goddess. But because Zeus is a jerk, he said, you can only help uh, Jason five times because uh, his mother, or his sister, rather, only called on you five times in the temple. And so he's got basically five, you know, ask me anythings for the goddess Hera. And, of course, being Jason, he ruins it. Just the first third of the movie, my friends are sitting there saying he's literally using up his favors from Hera to get out of the problem he made by ignoring his last favor from Hera. What is wrong with this guy? And I was like, oh, you recognize anyone in that story? Do you? Maybe? Player characters? My first question is, how many questions do I have? Oh, darn it. Oh, you really? And and of course, there's all sorts of different ways that you could uh, work on that, which is that if I tell you seven really important things, the seventh thing I tell you, one of you will die. Is this, Well, the, uh, the seventh thing I tell you will be the story of your death right. that or, day. Or, <laughs> you know, the seventh thing I tell you, you will become omniscient, uh, which is good, except you take my place. And I yeah, get you go, have to sit in the jar. Yeah, and I, I get to go and uh, uh, fly off to Yugoth and, and do all the stuff I wanted to do before I was stuck being omniscient, uh, if we're going to, you know, combine our Greek myth, so that... Uh, again, it's just finding a limiting factor so that the omniscience uh, works for the story without short-circuiting 
the story. Right. And then the other thing is, uh, as the GM, uh, just this is sort of a, a role play note. Try not to be a jerk when you're the omniscient guy. I mean, you can be sort of an irascible, funny jerk if you are as good a writer as Rex Stout. If you are not as good a writer as Rex Stout, try to be the sort of omniscient guy who is genuinely there because he believes the same things the players believe. He's on their side. More Mycroft Holmes, who is still kind of a jerk to Holmes, but that's because he's his brother. But he's not one to Watson. He's never one to Watson. Or the Phantom Stranger, who's always like, I can't tell you because of the torment in me. And he feels bad about the fact that he can't tell you. He's not smug about it like the Watcher. Well, as a Watcher, I know the answer. But sadly, I'm forbidden from telling you. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, it's so charming here on the moon. That guy. And so you don't want to be that guy. You want to be the helpful, on-your-side kind of omniscient helper who is invested in your success and is rooting for you, who is not... Uh, a jerk. If someone is a jerk, make it another person off stage. Make it the Zeus to your Hera. So it's like, oh, Jason, I would love to tell you, but my husband, the regal Lord Zeus, has arbitrarily prevented me from doing this in the last half of the film. That kind of thing. Now, I always play these characters as jerks. <laughs> yes. Well, I know. <laughs> yes. And uh, the... this is an intervention, Robin. There is no Brett Kramer. <laughs> and so the the thing that I uh, like about that is it, it gives you an emotional reason not to keep going to them, right? They're oh, dealing... because they're jerks all the time. Yeah, dealing yeah. with them is frustrating, right? It's like, yes, he's going to tell me where the map is, but he's going to be a dick to me about it, or uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's going to uh, lord it over us, or uh, he's. And more often when I do this character, he is not invested in the hero's success. He is messing with them. And so you know he's manipulating you. You know that his plan is not your plan. But you also know that, you know, grudgingly he kind of likes you, or at least he kind of likes playing with you and messing around. So you can uh, get information from him. But again, there's a cost, which right. is, I guess, sort of just the emotional equivalent of your earlier suggestion that you treat him as, as a resource. Right. So that yeah. uh, you don't. Uh, like having to go to this guy for information, but you will as a last resort. And that's a, so, uh, so I want to be Castiel and you want to be Crowley. If we're talking about supernatural. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, right. Ca Crowley's way more fun uh, to, to play and to interact with than, than Cass. Well, uh, that, you know, I, I think that the internet would disagree with you, but there you go. Well, uh, once I guess we're disagreeing about supernatural, we are changing the subject. And we are clearly we well off topic. <laughs> yes. And when we know when we're that far off topic, we it's time to move on to another topic entirely. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One -one has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One -one book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one -one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one -one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The smell of juniper berries and the snap of crushed lime segments, the tinkle of ice, and the rattle of a properly chilled metallic shaker tell us we've entered into the best part of the food hut, the attached wet bar. Robin, you apparently have been, unbeknownst to me, your beloved uh, friend and uh, alcoholic, not alcoholic, more of a hobby drinker, um, 
have been seeking a default cocktail, and you would like to update our beloved listeners on the progress of your dream quest for unknown cocktails. Right. So I thought that this would give us a a, a narrative spine, as it were, on which to talk about a cocktail. <laughs> Fantastic. And the uh, I guess the backstory here is that yes, I've I've reached uh, my current age without actually really having a, a default cocktail. And uh, for me, a cocktail is a, a matter of perhaps third or fourth resort, first of all. Mm-hmm. First of all, if there's a good craft beer uh, and we're hanging out drinking, that would be the, the thing that I would go for on its own. I'm also a big fan of wine. But in general, I think you need a really great glass of wine to stand on its own. And in this scenario, uh, we're imagining that we are at a bar. So we've discovered, first of all, that they have a crummy beer card uh and so okay so what's next well you look at the wine list and let's say they even a lot of bars first of all do not have good wines by the glass right they have the the whatever the house is which is often not good right and if they or, do, or it may be just too oaky because they think everyone likes to taste oak all the time right and and maybe the reason the beer card is not that great is that they're all ipas right uh, as well like so there's there's an equivalent thing in, in, in beer as well. But uh, the other thing, I don't, I don't know about how things are in Chicago, but certainly in Toronto, a really good quality craft beer will have like a 40% markup, whereas a great glass of wine will have something like a 200 to 400% markup. Yes. And if you know <laughs> yes. enough about... If you know enough about wine to know what they cost in the stores, I don't know about you, but I'm <laughs> unable to spend that. You begin to bridle at that thought. Right. So... Let's say we find ourselves in a bar where really the best choice is a cocktail. And I've, I've struggled over the years trying to figure out what the default thing is. And so the criteria for this quest, uh, first of all, has to be something that you can just order anywhere, especially a bar that's doesn't have a good yes. beer card. And <laughs> a, a bar where you don't trust the beer or the wine. Exactly. You should still be able to get something drinkable. Right. So you can't have a super exotic right. cocktail. You can't request an aviation, for example. Which is a right. delightful cocktail. It's very delicious, uh, refreshing, full-bodied, magnificent. But no one can make it except uh, a very few people, all of whom apparently are personally known to me. <laughs> um, I actually had a delightful aviation as part of this quest. But in fact, if I'm going to you know jump ahead and, and distur- disturb the narrative, <gasps> uh, yeah, exactly. That, that fails that test of can everybody make it. Mm-hmm. And the problem being is that uh, there's a particular cherry liqueur that you need in order to make it. There was a while there where aviations just didn't exist because no cherry liqueur fit the bill. There is one now, but you can't be sure that this hypothetically kind of crummy bar has that. So you're right, an aviation is out. Other things that are going to be out is the uh, Bloody Caesar, because you might not be in Canada. <laughs> All right. Um, is, is that a Bloody Mary made with Caesar dressing? Is, is that how uh, you guys do things up there? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> It's made with Clamato juice. Clamato, oh, right, yes. It's made with Mott's Clamato. You know what? I remembered. I remember that now, uh, as though I had already drunk a lot before I drank it <laughs> for some reason. Yes. Uh, I think we had that at Gen Con one time. They may have, uh, you know, brought in some Mott's. Uh, occasionally you find it, but again, you're not necessarily going to get right. that. Right, yeah. And we want to avoid any drink where you're going to get a super blank look from the bartender. Right, no um, sidecar And then there's or a class of things that everybody does, and they almost always do them poorly. So the mojito is stricken from the record. The mojito could be my default cocktail if anybody could make a darn mojito. Yeah, or if everyone had mint in stock. There are many bars that do not have mint, even in the summer. That's true. And if they do have mint, they're going to mint it up like crazy to show up the fact that they have mint and put in way too much mint. Right. The the, the capirherna is also an example of something that, that would be my default cocktail if I could be sure that everybody had it. Now, you, you, the listener, may be wondering, why don't I just want like a, uh, a Ryan Coke or a screwdriver? And the answer to A is, years ago, I lost my taste for soda. I don't want a Ryan Coke because I don't want the Coke part of it. Um, that's not a problem for you. Uh, you could certainly, uh, you're still a, a uh, I believe you may be drinking a Coke even as we speak. I am drinking a uh, Arnold Palmer as we speak. Ah, there we go. But it's it is not hours. a problem for me. But on the other hand, I find that if I'm in a bar, I don't want to drink a lot of Coke either because I'm in a bar. And so it's not just about, you know, administering alcohol. It's about the whole rest of the process as well. So yes, a rum and Coke or a Jack and Coke is delightful. And every now and again, every once in a blue moon, you're either so distrusting of the bar. And that, of course, is when the 
the Coke gun has Pepsi in it and you are thwarted yet again, but, but you just, you know, you need that hit, but nine, 99 times out of a hundred, not, not even a rum Coke for me. Right. Uh, and then the screwdriver, again, the problem is the orange uh, juice thing is often they call terrible. orange juice will probably be something horrible. Mm-hmm. So, so you can't go for that. So, uh, Ken, before we go on to the final uh, leg of my search, how did you arrive at your default uh, cocktail? My default cocktail is the vodka tonic because, as we have alluded, it is virtually impossible to screw up. I will not say completely impossible, but I will say virtually impossible because even mediocre tonic water is still tonic water and mediocre vodka is still vodka. You can, of course, have terrible vodka, but the floor in most bars is down around the Smirnoff or the next level below, which is actually tolerable if you dump tonic water into it and uh, ideally a lime wedge. So I'm not saying I've never had a bad vodka tonic, but very, very few. And it's super simple. Uh, The tonic keeps me safe from malaria, which is something to be concerned about in these times of global climate change. And um, uh, vodka is, of course... You know, that's, that, that, that just exists, that, that's, it flows through you. It binds us. It unifies us. It powers all of our, all of our Jedi abilities. And so, uh, other criteria for me, uh, it couldn't be something that's just very, very boozy tasting. I have a bit of a sweet tooth. And if I want to drink something that is just essentially straight alcohol, I will go for a, uh, a whiskey of some exactly. kind, a, something to sit there and, and sip. And that's not a cocktail. The other thing about the vodka tonic is that because of the tonic water, it is actually refreshing. Right. It, 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 it does have a, a non-chemical, but definite pick me up, uh, ability and it quenches thirst, not obviously as well as straight water does, but who, who in their right mind would drink water? Um, and then, uh, it, but it, but it does quench your thirst. It does have a refreshing component. It is pleasant to actually drink nine or 10 of them in a way that nine or 10 other things are maybe not as pleasant to drink. Another uh, possibility that was eliminated on grounds of you can't rely on them to have the ingredients is the dark and stormy. Right. Uh, you can't, can't rely on them to have ginger beer, although. Which uh, also rules out the Moscow Mule, another fine, reliable cocktail. If someone has ginger beer, that's any good. Right. Uh, do you know the origin of the Moscow Mule? The I know the story of the origin of the Moscow Mule, which is certainly my belief in the origin of the Moscow Mule, is that there was a nightclub in Los Angeles that had a lot of vodka that it just could not get rid of. And so in sort of desperation, uh, this was in 1942, so everyone was all, you know, up on Stalin. They said, let's try and mix it with the other things we can't get rid of, which was the uh, ginger beer. And then they put limes in it because it was a bar. And that was what created the Moscow Mule and the vodka ginger beer combo, since people, I guess, had been drinking straight vodka until then, became the first actually popular vodka cocktail in America and sort of allowed vodka to begin its long march through the institutions uh, in proper communist style and eventually arrive at the uh, pinnacle uh, where it was for most of the uh, 80s and 90s until it was dethroned by bourbon again. Yeah, so the, the, the origin story is literally... One person said, I have a lot of vodka. Another person said, that's a weird coincidence. I have a lot of ginger beer. And then, and also my girlfriend has a lot of copper mugs. <laughs> that's the secret is yeah. you got to have a girlfriend with copper mugs. Uh, so, so that's uh, uh, that. So uh, finally, I guess we should come to my uh, uh, final short list. So I went to the same uh, bar each time to, to try things. And uh, they were, and I went to one that, did them well, so I, I, you could argue that I should have gone to a bad bar to see which, uh, which one that, yeah. you know, but you if, know, I'm not being paid test. for this quest. Right. No, yeah. you're just doing this because you believe in science, Robin. Right. Uh, you're a and pure so the, scientist. The things that were, uh, kind of winners were the sort of citrusy things that you should be able to rely on a bar to do. So, uh, the aviation we uh, mentioned already, but of course that has an exotic ingredient in it. Uh, the Manhattan, uh, came in, in, kind of second that was good and uh and again sort of in the alcohol plus light sort of citrusy mix uh sazerac i uh tried to but the real winner uh you want to guess what the winner was well if you were trying sazerac it's not a real winner um uh the the real winner for robin uh, it surely wasn't the old-fashioned because it takes forever to make and people often do it wrong um, it, it was sweet. the old-fashioned, so maybe I'm chosen fashion. wrong. No, maybe. I mean, the thing is, you, when you make an when you make a proper old-fashioned, is, is that is it is have you found that to be in the mojito class? No. It, 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 first of all, uh, people don't muddle the fruit correctly a lot of time. Second of all, bartenders hate making old-fashions if they're busy. 
because it takes a while because you've got to muddle the fruit. You got to pour the, the, the stuff over. You've got to let the ice settle a little bit. It's not a make fire and forget cocktail. And so in my personal quest to not make bartenders hate me, I prefer not to make something that they might be angry at if it's a busy night. That was not my criteria. But then again, no, no, I'm not I, going to I be understand ordering... that you are a sociopath. Yeah. Also, I'm not going to be ordering six of them. No, also true. I'm just going to order one. So, uh-huh. but, but, but yes, the old fashioned is a terrific cocktail. It is assuming that they have oranges, it, which is not necessarily the way to bet. It is pretty bulletproof, although there are much bigger gradations I've found in the old fashioned world than in the vodka tonic world. Uh, let's just put right. it that way. If, if I liked tonic, that would have simply, there wouldn't be, a, there wouldn't be a segment if I liked tonic. Wouldn't have to have an argument. Yeah. How about soda? You could have, you could have like scotch and soda or something. I would just I mean, have with, the scotch and then it wouldn't would, be a I cocktail. Guess so. Then it wouldn't be a cocktail. Well, it's barely a cocktail to have scotch and soda anyway. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So the old fashioned is the winner. So do we want to tell the good people uh, the, the signs that you have found at least of a proper old fashioned, a sign that you might order more than one, if not six? Well, I think you said it, that the uh, uh, the fruit has to be properly meddled, meddled with and or muddled, and it has to be a uh, proper uh, fruit to begin with. And, of course, the the quality is going to depend on the quality of the bourbon or rye. What instead I wanted, my next experiment is going to be to start asking something that may slightly confuse bartenders and see Uh-oh. if it pays off. All right. uh, because uh, in my experience, and this, of course, is colored by the surrounding nature of the experience, the Wisconsin equivalent is the brandy old-fashioned. Yes. And uh, you and I have both been to the same smelt fry uh, near Madison, and you are then uh, it's held at a gun club, and you are handed, uh, if someone buys them for you, uh, brandy old-fashions on the way in, and uh, they are uh, delicious and, and quite potent as well. So... Uh, my next experiment is going to see outside of Wisconsin if the... <laughs> yeah, there's the trick, yes. right? That's doing it on the hard yes. setting. If, if the server intuits that a brandy old-fashioned is an old-fashioned but with brandy instead of rye or bourbon... And it is sweet because they usually add 7-Up or uh, something like that to the glass instead of the water. That is uh, often... and You don't even usually get water. It's just supposed to let the ice melt. Um, but they will add... Uh, a, a Sprite or, or 7-Up or whatever their gun says to the glass to make it a brandy old-fashioned sweet. So by the time you've done all that, it is not even an old-fashioned, which is part of what I think bollocksed me when I was fed my first bunch of them in Wisconsin. Although in fairness, they are, they are, they are, they are deceptively pleasant. Yes. Uh, they, they go down like pop and then they hammer you in the back of the head. And that was the one convention where I was doing day drinking when I still had an event later. And thankfully, I sobered up 30 minutes before I was supposed to give a speech. So, uh, But uh, we're uh, diverting now into just general reminiscence, which is our sign that we need to move this podcast along. uh, Give it a good old uh, poke, slide the glass down the bar. The podcast doesn't have to go home, but it can't stay here. Exactly. The werewolves of Dacia? They're the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds re- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by 
biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like John Buckley, Jack Gulick, Steve Sigety, Jacob Ansari, and Shane McLean. It's time once again to undergo the retinal scan, the background check, and the light pat-down required to listen <laughs> to the Tradecraft Hut, which of course is our segment on espionage and uh, its connection to international relations. Now, Ken, 45,000 news cycles ago, the French managed to uh, elect a leader, even though the vast authoritarian uh, Russian-backed hacking conspiracy uh, released a bunch of his emails full of disinformation right before the uh, election. But uh, nonetheless, in a sign that, uh, A, their magic may be wearing thin, and B, uh, that they have special laws preventing uh, election coverage right before the election. Uh, we have a kind of similar thing here in Canada, but not nearly so stringent. It just affects advertising. But w- whether out of good sense at the polling booth or the good sense to have this legal structure in place, the uh, French nonetheless did not elect Putin's candidate. Now, on intelligence Twitter, there was much discussion about how the folks who had promulgated the uh, attempted email uh, disinfo thing might be in for a rude surprise because according to uh, these folks at least, uh, French intelligence does not mess around. And that made me think, hey, wait a minute, I don't think I know a huge amount about French intelligence. So Ken, starting with uh, that proposition, does the French intelligence establishment mess around? Well, let's put it this way. When your proudest achievement is the explosion and sinking of a Greenpeace boat, you don't mess around. Now, you may say perhaps your priorities are a little bit misaligned, but La Belle France wants to keep setting off H-bombs in French Polynesia. La Belle France is going to set off H-bombs in French Polynesia, whether there's a Greenpeace boat there or not. But no, the French do not mess around. They are very, very serious about internal security. They have been since the palmy days of Charles VI, who set up their first domestic intelligence service way back in the day. And then Cardinal Richelieu, who you may remember from a number of movies involving three to five musketeers, sort of turned it into the the fully professional organization that it was through the latter period of the of the Bourbons, through Napoleon, a guy named Fouché just sort of uh rose through the ranks in proper Napoleonic style, mostly by lying and manipulating people to become the feared director of Napoleon's secret police. And then even after Napoleon left, they said, you know what? We should have a feared director of a secret police. That sounds super handy. Now, the trouble with having a uh, secret police that does not mess around is quite often it goes a little far. It may blow up a Greenpeace boat or it may kidnap and murder a Moroccan revolutionary living in Paris. Uh, who can say what it might get up to? So there is some bitter with the sweet of the not mess around. But yeah, by and large, I think most people say certainly in terms of domestic security and even to a degree in terms of foreign intelligence, the French are kind of on top of things. Now, they did have a big Soviet spy ring in them like every other Western country did. So that I don't know if it's like you can't blame them. We all we all we were all terrible, but they did have it. But on the other hand, they did stumble onto the Cuban uh, missile crisis before the CIA did, and they stumbled onto the invasion of Afghanistan before the CIA did. So they're at least they're they're getting some bang for their buck, and uh, this is their rep certainly. And I think by and large, events tend to illustrate that. Uh, as you say, the French security services do not mess around. So assuming uh, a contemporary game, uh, for example, Knights Black Agents, where you're a, a burned agent on the run from the vampires it turned out you were working for, uh, if you're interacting with uh, French intelligence, uh, what organization are you interacting with and what can you do as a GM to make them seem like uh, like your uh, NPCs are from that organization. One of the things that the French intelligence does is it works very much with French corporations, especially French military industrial corporations. And you might say, well, surely the CIA also 
operates hand in glove with American oil companies and American munitions companies. And it's like, oh, the CIA wishes it could operate so hand in glovely as the French do. The French will actually put their national spy service in the business of making sure that someone gets a contract or, or doesn't get a contract. It's they what will, we call a private public partnership. Exactly. They will, they will um, uh, dig up industrial espionage. So one of the things that you might discover in a game is the French secret services are showing up in an area where you had thought you were okay because you were engaged in purely private vampire hunting. But it turns out they are still paying attention to you because you are affecting La Belle France in some way. I mean, obviously, to make them seem French, they should smoke, I think. But uh, if it, you're doing a proper spy game, everyone's smoking. And what agency are you encountering? You're encountering either the General Directorate for External Security, or as people have been waiting for me to say, I'll show, Direction Générale de la Sécurité Extérieure, DGSE, which uh, succeeds the pre-80s uh, SDECE, which is what they set up after World War II to combine the old military intelligence, which was the Deuxième Bureau, which was one of the best military intelligence uh, units in uh, the world during the 19th and uh, early 20th century. And has one of the best names. It absolutely has one of the best names. But it was very much torn apart by the uh, Dreyfus scandal, much like the rest of French society, which hampered it in a good way. And then it was... It, it was no, it, it couldn't provide intelligence that a general staff that believed in Elan instead of intelligent tactics would, would listen to. So the, the, uh, the, the Deuxième Bureau knew all about the German attacks, but couldn't get anyone to sort of change their strategy, much less their tactics to confront what was going to happen. That, that old recurring theme of, uh, espionage. Right. And then internally, there is, uh, perhaps logically, the DGSI, which is the General Directorate for Internal Security, which used to be, before 2006 or 2008, used to be the DST, the Direction de la Surveillance du Territoire, which was part of the French National Police. And so in the in spy novels, often you'll just read that the Sûreté is after you. And the uh, Sûreté is sort of the French version of of Scotland Yard, meaning it's the police that investigate national crimes. Scotland Yard is actually sort of part of the London Police Department, but because London is so super dominant, uh, Scotland Yard winds up having the remit that the FBI does in America to go around and investigate crimes all over the country uh, if they're invited in by the local constabulary. The Sûreté doesn't have to be invited in because it's France, um, and it's the Sûreté Nationale, which basically right. means the the national security. Right, and the, and the listener will be unsurprised to discover that the uh, bureaucratic distinctions are somewhat opaque to the outsider. Oh, yes. That's the other thing about the French is they, like the Americans, like us, love to have a bunch of different bureaucracies with their fingers in things. So you have, they still have a military intelligence uh, unit. The Deuxième Bureau has been recreated in the uh, Direction du Raisonnement Militaire. They have another military intelligence agency that does counterespionage. They have their version of the NSA, which is the ANSSI, but they have another part of it that does electronic warfare. And um, uh, that's for La Guerre Electronique. Then the judiciary have their own police because they don't trust the legislature or the president. And um, then you've got the standard sort of border uh, police that turns into a uh, intelligence agency, just like they do all over Europe. So lots and lots of different little bureaucracies, all with the horn in. And sort of um, the conceit of American spy novels is always that your guy works for an unknown office somewhere in in the bowels of Washington, D.C. In France, that could be true. There might be a spy agency that got set up by Napoleon III and no one remembered to shut it down. Or right. they got set up by Charles de Gaulle uh, when Algeria was heading up and uh, no one has bothered to shut it down because it doesn't get headlines for doing things like blowing up um, uh, Greenpeace boats. And you show up with paperwork with a good enough crest on it and all the other intelligence agencies, oh, oh checks out. Right. And you're a cool, normal, superior uh, accent. And then yes. they won't uh, question you any more than the average uh, a Britisher questions the guy who shows up with the Eaton uh, accent. So which of uh, which of these agencies are you going to want to seek help from if you're uh, fleeing uh, aliens or alien vampires or just regular vampires? Well, that's the other great thing is if they're just after you and you're a bunch of foreigners, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> if 
you can figure out that the aliens what are actually... What do you actually... need to have in order to gain the help <laughs> of a French intelligence agent? You need to have something that they want. And in, in some cases, that might be legitimate intel that the alien vampires are seeking to place the K to Orsai with uh, alien vampires who will be somewhat less effectual, effectual at advancing French policy. Or you may say that they are, you know, legitimately uh, damaging the security of France. Or you need to have something that you can give them in trade. They are very, like I, like I said before, they're very pragmatic. It's very much about what's good for La Belle France is good for the agency, and that's it. They do international cooperation, but a lot of that is because the vast amount of intel that the NSA gathers is super handy for uh, the, the French uh, intelligence services, which don't have the global collections capacity that um, uh, the Americans do. Although, again, they have their own space program, sort of, so they've launched spy satellites. So the French are they, – they are, they are a strong B player in the world of, of intelligence, but you can have something that they don't have either – through sources and methods that they don't have, or just sheer volume of product, which is how America usually does it. So if you have been gathering intel on the alien vampire threat, you may have also gathered intel about people in other countries who behave badly and can be suborned by vampires, or say by a cigarette-smoking guy in a really well-cut trench coat. And uh, then you give that to the French, and they're like, oh, well, perhaps we can see our way clear to helping you with your alien vampire problem. Yes. Just don't codename your contact the cigarette-smoking man, because it's like... Because it will be hard to narrow down. Everybody. Yeah. You have to, you have to uh, name them all after, uh, after designers. Although, uh, based on recent travels in France, he's now the vape-smoking man. Oh, well, you know, I hope that if you're dealing with a, a DGSE agent, that he is, that, that he is smoking a proper cigarette still, that he's a, an old school Galois smoker, not one of these new, um, uh, all SIGINT, uh, vape smokers. It's the difference between human and SIGINT, again. And what kind of, uh, covert ops, if any, does French intelligence get up to outside of France? Outside of France, they do a lot of work with sort of national allies in Africa, uh, the old French uh, colonial empire that is now sort of the French community. It, it's a uh, coup d'etat prevention and coup d'etat, occasionally coup d'etat causing, although they prefer not to get up to that action because it can go badly for them. You know, they, they, they launch um, the occasional rescue operation if there are French nationals that are uh, held somewhere. And they just sort of uh, go around and try and winkle out uh, military secrets in the old Deuxième Bureau way. So they are probably going to be paying more attention to the type of drone that the terrorist is using than necessarily where the terrorist bought the drone. Um, because that the first is threat analysis. The second is more the sort of uh, British, you know, find the head of the snake analysis. And the Americans, of course, just flood the zone and, and, and buy the answer from the British or the French. And presumably they're, uh, they're now going to be out there uh, going after the uh, recognizable people who are uh, part of the uh, cyber propaganda war that is going on. And uh, Well, to the extent that those cyber propaganda guys are in uh, Moldova or some other place that the long arm of the French security state can't reach, they may have to settle, and this is not necessarily settling, I think, in their eyes, for finding someone else who is an agent of influence in France and making their life a miserable living hell. So even if they're not provably connected to the, the, the cyber hijinks, if they can find someone else who is doing Putin's bidding in France on the sort of, you know, um, uh, if you can't punch the guy, punch the guy next to the guy principle, they will um, uh, do something uh, secret and annoying to them. And, uh, and that will move it down because the French don't actually want to upset the European apple cart too much because again, like the African apple cart, it's pretty much an apple cart that's stacked in their favor for the time being. The last thing they want to do is get Eastern Europe head up and mad at France because that what used to be their whole bulwark against the Germans or the Russians was that they had very, very strong relations with the Poles and the Czechs and those guys. A lot of that went away during the Cold War. They've been trying to restore that. And so when, for example, in uh, the Iraq War, when Poland and uh, most of the uh, of the um, new members of NATO were supporting the invasion and sending troops to help, the French were very mad about that, and they, and they were super mad because they thought of that as sort of trying to peel away their old uh, area of influence. But if it's outside that, if it's past the boundary of Poland, then they, they don't want to actually start something with the Russians because they know that then they'll be asked to actually finish it. And certainly, if they can't count on the CIA to come help them, 
or the, or the NSA, then they really don't want to start something with the Russians because again, they're, they're pragmatic. They can count. They know who's got the big battalions right now. And it's the GRU and the FSB and the SVR. That sounds like a concluding note. If ever I heard one. So, uh, let us uh, think about uh, some delicious French food for a moment, mm, mm. and then move on to our next segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. We walk up the twisting staircase, past the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, entering the cramped yet charming Edwardian confines of the study to find a note on the desk saying, Sorry, gone to L.A., Talk to you later, because the consulting occultist is sitting on the beach at Malibu, sipping a Mai Tai. Robin, you're going to have to step in and answer my question, which is, what the heck is going on with the ley lines of Los Angeles that you, and as far as I can tell, only you, have connected to newspaper titan and real estate speculator extreme Harry Chandler? Where did you get that nugget of love? Just from doing simple research, it surprises me. And this research can be yours for the mere purchase price of Cthulhu Confidential, the uh, opening uh, bid in our line of uh, gumshoe one-to-one books. So as I was uh, looking into the psychogeography of uh, Los Angeles and the the power brokers that ran it, uh, of course, uh, you immediately start to think of Harry Chandler, who, as you say, uh, was a real estate uh, mogul extraordinaire and owned the Los Angeles Times or, and was publisher of the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and it's still in the hands of the Chandler family today. Now, uh, outwardly, Chandler, who is uh, in 1937, which is sort of the uh, selected date for uh, Dex Raymond's adventures in uh, Cthuloid film noir Los Angeles, he's 73 years old already. And he's uh, as patrician and bland looking a uh, a mogul as he can possibly be. He's uh, probably one of the people who Hollywood said, get somebody who looks like Harry Chandler to That'd play. be a Harry Chandler type. Exactly. Uh, and he took part uh, in the growth of Los Angeles from basically a sleepy cow town. Uh, and then it got some oil money and then it really started to, uh, uh, to, to pick up and really boom and became uh, in 37 a sort of bustling hub of everything new and crazy in America. But if you look at the list of uh, properties that he's involved with, you start to think, oh, why is he putting all of these things together? How is What is he doing to uh, control uh, the magic of the city? And, and one of our first hints is that uh, he married into uh, uh, great wealth. And so when he hooked up with his uh, father-in-law, uh, General Harrison Gray Otis, all of a sudden his pulmonary tuberculosis went into remission. Mm. So how, how would this be happening? Well, obviously he was being plugged into the, into the earth grid, uh, which then uh, uh, powered him back up, uh, healed him, and got him thinking, how can I make this uh, grid of, of properties uh, even more powerful, and therefore myself even more powerful? Because he was no ordinary newspaper publisher. He, you know, made and then unmade mares. Uh, he could call the chief of police and get him to go do shady things for him without having to go through any uh, channels on top he of He was that. known as the governor of Southern California. Yes. And the list of properties, that uh, iconic properties that he was involved with in some way, I think also underline the idea that he was, you know, building 
an empire of occult pylons because he was took part in uh, developing the Los Angeles Coliseum, the Hollywood Bowl, the Ambassador Hotel, which uh, continues to become even more numinous uh, through Los Angeles uh, history. That's, of course, where RFK was assassinated. And even the Hollywood sign owes its existence in part to Harry Chandler, because that, uh, as I think we all know, was originally not a, a civic emblem, but was a giant ad for a, a property development. Yes. And it originally said Hollywood Land. Because Chandler had had a similar giant sign for a different property development. And when his partner said, well, uh, we're, we got this new great land here in Hollywood. What should we do? And Chandler says, put up a giant sign, of course. Also take out a lot of ads in the newspaper. That would help. Yeah. And so that, uh, uh, sign, which, uh, you know, had to be restored uh, several decades back is the, that's the symbol of, of Los Angeles. And so he had something to do with uh, all of those places. Also Santa Anita Park, yeah. the racetrack. Um, even more telling is the Los Angeles Times building itself, uh, which he built on the site of two previous city halls. Mm-hmm. As an, an architectural uh, magician, if you're going to achieve power over a city, you're going to occupy the lot that previously had all of the civic magic attached to it. Mm-hmm. But even more so you're going to have an influence over how the new Los Angeles City Hall, the still current Los Angeles City Hall, uh, gets built. And so, you know, Chandler's just the kind of guy who, like, he just gets involved in stuff like, what's the City Hall going to be? Uh, just like he's on uh, the board of nearly every important corporation in, in Los Angeles. And so when Los Angeles City Hall was built, he advised uh, the the other powers that be make sure there's a zoning rule that prohibits any other building from exceeding its height, uh, which, you know, magical pylon wise. Of course, that's if I, I hear the alarm bells going off, Ken. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's very sensible. Uh, we didn't have a law uh, when they built uh, the uh, Board of Trade building with the faceless statue of Ceres on top of it at uh, 606 feet tall. And so therefore that uh, th- that great ziggurat of wealth did get surpassed. Uh, in the 70s. And uh, uh, speaking of uh, classical influences on architecture, the city hall was uh, modeled on the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. Hey, there you go. One of there the seven go. wonders of the ancient world restored to us by the lovely and talented uh, Harry Chandler. Right. And of course, uh, Halicarnassus, uh, uh, a Hellenistic Persian structure, uh, was built in the 4th century BCE. And uh, why do we have the word mausoleum? Well, that's because... King Mausolus was buried there. Yes, King Mausolus. Uh, his uh, sister-slash-widow, Artemisia, uh, had this structure built in his honor. So basically, uh, you know, and, and any uh, offspring of Artemisia would have been, uh, you know... That's my sister. That's my daughter. That's my sister. That's my daughter. That's that's some L.A. Uh, yeah, right. stuff going on there. <laughs> Forget about it, Jake. Um, it's Halicarnassus, <laughs> right? And so, uh, of course, Chandler was evoking the spirit of these uh, two great rulers, who, of course, were famed for sucking up all the vast quantities of wealth of their kingdom. They were, uh, and of course, uh, that was his project as as well. And in the nation's uh, capital, in Washington D.C. The uh, chief Masonic temple is also based on the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. So uh, surely that is uh, a connection of federal power to the power of Los Angeles and uh, California. Now, Chandler, who was a noted eugenicist, also uh, had a habit of noticing that there were people living in, let's call it his city, I'm yeah. sure he certainly did. I'm sure that many people did. Yeah, who seemed inconvenient uh, to him and whose uh, different blood was probably, he thought, messing up their uh, his nice uh, ley lines. So, for example, in Alvera Street was where uh, the city's Hispanic population originally lived. But uh, he and a heritage preservationist named Christine Sterling took a look at that and thought, you know, this would be better as a, sort of a historic tourist village celebrating... Hispanic culture where <laughs> no Hispanic people live. Well, that uh, otherwise you can't get tourists. I mean, just right. think about it, right? You know, you don't want to see a bunch of Hispanic people when you're celebrating Hispanic culture. That sends the wrong message. That, that's what Chandler <laughs> and Sterling uh, thought. Yes. And so they seized upon this place called the Avila Adobe, which was an 1818 uh, structure, one of the first uh, structures in uh, Los Angeles, because of course it's 
comparatively new compared to the, the rest of the world. It's out on the West Coast. And so uh, what Chandler did is it was in a really bad state of repair, too bad to even try to start to preserve it until Chandler picks up the phone, calls the police chief, uh, whose name is Two Gun Davis, and uh, which tells you everything you need to know about the police chief. And so he goes and gets a bunch of prisoners from the prison system, takes them on over to the Villa Adobe and fixes the place up enough that it can then be registered as a heritage site, which then gets Chandler's foot in the door, uh, redeveloping the place and uh, uh, turning it into, uh, by 1930, a tourist trap Mexican-themed uh, marketplace and moving all of the Hispanic population out to the Chavez Ravine. Now, later on, living in the Chavez Ravine will turn out to be inconvenient for the development and desires of Los Angeles, and that'll be replaced with Dodger by Stadium. Dodger Stadium. Right. Uh, and so once they finish that, he looks over across the way and he goes, uh-oh, there's a Chinese neighborhood over there, and if there's anything that could possibly mess up my lay power, it would be people who know geomancy. A bunch of feng shui. Yes. So, hmm, can I repeat what I did just now to the Hispanic population of the city to the Chinese population? Well, yes, indeed, he did. And yes. so the city's original Chinatown used to be where its uh, Union Station wound up being. And so he tried to get rid of them. Now, they had a little bit more political influence, and they'd seen what had happened to the, uh, the Mexican-American community. And so they said, heck no, we're not going. So, of course... Guess what Chandler runs? A newspaper. So he trumps up a smallpox epidemic in the newspaper, a bit of 1930s fake news, and is able to use that as the justification for uh, driving out the residents. Then he sets up a Chinatown a little further north, and he surrounds the Chinese community with a picturesque, tourist-friendly wall. And uh, again, this is geomancy. This is ley lines. Obviously, he is segregating his own power from this uh, threatening uh, other geomantic power. and it's like just, uh, surrounding a, con a conductor with resistors. Exactly. And for an additional uh, uh, adding of insult to injury in order to make sure that uh, the uh, community could not derive their cultural power from uh, the walls of this uh, fake tourist Chinatown, it's made uh, to a large extent from leftover set pieces from the movie The Good Earth. <laughs> uh, which stars uh, such celebrated Chinese actors as Paul Muni and Louise Rainier. As part of his eugenic concerns, he's also a friend of our old goat gland doctor, a buddy, uh, John Brinkley, who Chandler brings to Los Angeles in 1922 with the promise slash threat that if he can implant goat testicles into one of his editors, and I imagine the editorial meeting that morning, um, where the guy's like eating his donut and he comes in and everyone's looking at him. He's like, what? Oh, why did he get assigned to the goat gland? Ah, <laughs> uh, why, why am I on goat glands and community affairs? What's wrong? with me uh so he um uh, said that if the operation was successful he would make him the most famous surgeon in america and if not then he would be damned um and he uh got a waiver for california's stringent medical license requirements which required you to be a doctor to practice oh, medicine weird how harry chandler could get the rules bent <laughs> it's on his odd how that happened and while in uh los angeles that's where brinkley uh, discovered Chandler's radio station, KHJ, and said, you know what goat glands need? More radio. So when he did eventually have to leave L.A. ahead of the whole not having a doctor license thing, um, he brought the knowledge of radio with him and went down to uh, Pioneer Radio, as we have talked about on a very previous episode of this specific podcast. So I can't see how, uh, looking at that set of facts, that I could possibly be the first person to realize that Harry Chandler was setting up a, a ley line empire in Los Angeles. Um, and yet, somehow, you were, Robin. You were. Well, I, I suppose others are constrained uh, by, uh, let's say, provable reality, whereas I was writing a Cthulhu Confidential book. And on that uh, heartwarming note of self-promotion... Perhaps it is time. Could that be covert self-promotion? <laughs> yes, it could be. Could be covert. Sure. Let's say it is time perhaps to back away from the beach, leaving the figure staring out at the Pacific, pondering on what he has done in the manner of great uh, 70s California film protagonists since time immemorial and leave this podcast for another better podcast that we're going to build a little ways to the north after knocking this one down. Forget it, Ken. It's podcast town. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Tall Grain Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Canon Robin. Improve your leyline connections alongside such patrons as Phil Bailey. Hyperlexic. Jason Denon, Frank King, and Ruth Tillman. Snag Canon Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>